The program is Profiles. My name is Peter Jacoby, and I'm host for this session. My guest in the studio is Carol Vaness. There's a cliché that goes, he who can't teaches. It is pretty much nonsense to begin with, but if ever proof were needed to discount such a notion, Carol Vaness would serve to vanquish it. This remarkably gifted soprano came to Indiana University's renowned Jacobs School of Music to teach. She was chosen as part of the school's Commitment to Excellence program, which has brought to Bloomington a number of distinguished, still deep into the profession musicians. Carol Vaness, like her instrumentalist colleagues, doubles as professional and teacher. She definitely and definitively can do and teaches. Welcome to the program, Carol Vaness. Thank uh, you. Now, something brought you to Indiana. You didn't come at career's finish, simply desirous of going on, moving on to something else in your life. In your case, what caused you to focus on teaching? Because you still do sing. Thank you. I was actually, for probably 10 years even before this, starting to do master classes and starting to get that feeling. Initially, I was a little nervous. I thought, well, how many bohems have I done? How many donanas? I know how I do it, but can I actually impart this kind of information to a young singer? And bit by bit, I refused, for example, to perform myself. I know that many opera singers do go in and start singing themselves, or they make it all about them, but I just went in and started focusing immediately in on what the singer could do, and bit by bit, I was told that I was a very good diagnostician, that I could actually pick up on something either if the singer was nervous, I was able to calm them down, if the singer had a little bit of a breathing problem, I was able to get them to breathe just by kind of psychologically and mentally, you know, kind of clinging or or getting attached to their psyche as singers. And um, I think I had been so many times coached and helped along by not only great singers, but great conductors and great directors, that it was a natural outpouring for me. And something that I just knew that every time someone asked me to do it, I loved. Well, it started to be that um, Dean Richards and his wife all of a sudden started coming to my performances. And they were very sweet and kind and, you know, invited me out to dinner. And we would talk about, you know, education. And I said, oh, yes, I, how much I loved master classes and I loved going any place I went. When I was in Paris, they asked me. When I was in Italy, they asked me. When I was every place in the United States, I was lucky to be able to work with Marilla in San Francisco. And he said, well, would you come to Bloomington? And I said, well, why not? And of course, I would love to. And they arranged, I would say, just about every year for three to four years. Uh, for me to come for three, four, five days and do an intense set of master classes from every single studio. There was no studio left out, and I didn't know who studied with whom, and I just worked with everyone, and everyone seemed to really like me. All the teachers liked me, and the students seemed to get along 
very, very well with me because I could get them to la- relax and laugh and enjoy music, enjoy what they were giving. And and one day they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, <laughs> so then my husband and I came and stayed a little bit longer. And the next thing you knew, we were moving into a house. So... It's been wonderful to be here. I love young singers. I'm not one of those types of singers that feels like, well, you know, I'm finished now, and so I'd better do something. I feel like that very fact that I'm still involved with the other great singers of the world, Mr. Domingo, and up until recently, Luciano Pavarotti, before his death, um, I was was very blessed to be able to do his final Tosca, many of his final Toscas, actually, the ones in Berlin, the ones in um, Covent Garden, many, many of them around the world. He wanted to finish with Tosca. And luckily, you know, for me and a blessing just to be with him at any time, he took me with him. So um, that in itself, I was able to bring something of someone who had actually walked on the stage and said, you know, you're right to be nervous, so don't think you're unusual. That's, we're all scared. You know, I said, and I would say, you know, Mr. Domingo is really nervous before Otello, and tenors would look at me with these wide eyes, and I'd said, so don't think you're unusual just because you're a little nervous. You should be. I said, but just think that the minute you start singing, all those nerves can help you with your energy, can help your brain work faster. And I said, if your brain works faster, your breathing's going to work well, and then you're going to be able to sing better. So bit by bit, I've tried to approach all of my—I certainly teach technique, but I really like to teach singers how to sing for the stage and not just for the studio. I'm going to get back to Domingo and Pavarotti a little later on, but this blend of teaching and singing, has that brought challenges, uh, mixing the two professions, or do you just all consider it one, two parts of one? Well, it's a little trickier for me now in that when I, well, actually, the very first year I taught, it was tricky to sing because I taught so enthusiastically and talked quite full, and my voice would carry, and I would use my voice, and the end of every day, day, my voice would be exhausted. So I thought, you know, and my brain would also be exhausted. Mm. So if I had had to try to go to a rehearsal after teaching, I am sure that I would have been fried. However, I was really lucky in that I kind of would set this much aside and make sure none of my students got cheated. I wanted everyone to have their lessons because they certainly work hard enough and pay enough to for it. And I love them. I think they're great. And then I would go off and I do my operas mostly in the breaks. Occasionally on a weekend, I did go into New York to sing for um, a benefit and took a slightly longer weekend, but I try not to miss too many classes. I 
cut a little bit back on the singing, and I find myself every year adding a little bit of heavier repertoire, perhaps, because as I get older, my voice goes there. But I'm also much more clever about how I use my voice in the classroom. So it's been a wonderful learning thing for me, too, about how to teach young singers how to speak on the stage so that they don't hurt their voices Mm -hmm. and they don't get hoarse when they have to sing. Do you find a special satisfaction in in these new duties of yours? Oh, I love it. I love to see a soprano, the light go on or a tenor go, oh my gosh, that was so much easier. It's something that's very difficult to, to describe. It's sort of like when you're in the middle of an ensemble in Figaro, and or you're in Così fan tutte, and you're doing that very hard trio, Suave si al vento, and everyone is singing really soft, you and Dorabella and Alfonso, and you're all looking at each other to make sure you're together, and there's something when you reach a, the climax of it, and you know you've all got it perfectly, that just is something that you share that is almost not explainable, you know, to someone who hasn't really done a lot of it, but it's such a it's such a payback. You feel like you should be doing it for free because it feels so good. Well, let's go back to the early days. Uh, were there musical influences in your childhood? I was born in San Diego but raised outside of Los Angeles. Um, my parents were could both sing, but sing the popular songs of the day or... Um, I was much more into the Beatles than opera, actually. My first teacher for a choir in high school was a nun with an operatic voice, and I thought it was just horrible, all the, and I thought, oh, boy, that's, I never want to sing like that. I always want to sing like, I don't know how to love him. That's what I wanted to do, but she... um, she certainly would play beautiful music, and bit by bit I would start to like it. It wasn't until I went to undergraduate school that I became much more interested in opera because there was this wonderful man who just loved it and would play it for us in voice class. My mom and dad were very proud of me. And I think my mother, I have to say, only came to about four or five operas because Traviata finally did her in. She said, I'm not watching my daughter die, so I'm not coming. (laughs) And my dad came to everything so that he could jump up at the end of anything I sang and yell bravo. So I know that the man at the Met when I made my debut with Marilyn Horn, jumping up and yelling bravo at the end of Armida's aria was my pop. So, you know, and I... They didn't understand, really. I think my dad finally understood that I was okay to pay the rent and have insurance and um, be saving money when I was live from the White House in a command performance for President Bush, the father Bush, and uh, Boris Yeltsin. The night they signed the arms agreement, I was was actually um, the entertainment. And I have to tell you, when CNN had their camera right behind my head— the roses there from my hair. You could see them on TV. I said, you see those roses? That's me. (laughs) But I have to say it's the first time that I really realized that what we gave as singers was a great relief and a moment of calm and beauty 
to men and women who not only serve their countries, but who also have incredible stress in their lives. And that goes from everyone from the president down to my dad, who was a security guard. And I think that when I sang, my dad felt good. And that's what I wanted to do, was make people feel good. That's what artists do, don't they? I think they should want to do that. I never went into a career thinking, well, I hope I sing at the Met. Well, I want to make a zillion dollars a year. I just really loved the feeling it gave me to be able to express myself. It was almost like as when I was growing up, I couldn't find words as an, as even as I became an adult to where I could people could understand me. But somehow... When I was singing, people seemed to get me more. They seemed to understand me more. I don't know if that's true. It might have just been my my young 20s perception of what I was then, but I don't know. You, you list three persons uh, as persons of importance in your early years, along with your parents. David Scott, who was your teacher yes. at California State Fullerton. Uh, Cal State Northridge, actually. Uh, Northridge, mm-hmm. not Fuller. And then Kurt Herbert Adler, mm-hmm. who was a longtime head of the San Francisco Opera, and then Beverly Sills. Yes. Actually, so tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, my teacher, David, when I first met him, I went into graduate school and auditioned for him. And I auditioned as a mezzo-soprano because I always had low notes. And um, David at that point said to me, well, you're really a soprano, and but I'll take you into my studio. It was a very small studio. I mean, Cal State University, Northridge, he had a very good opera program, but it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near the scope here that we have at Indiana. It was like one-tenth of the size at least. And um, he's, he immediately said I was a soprano, and I walked out of the room thinking, well, there's a dumb man. He doesn't know a mezzo when he sees one <laughs> or hears one. But, of course, then it became pretty clear after about a month that I was a soprano. Um, and he's been with me from the beginning. Um, I had a lesson week before last. I continue to study with him, and it's been 35 years. And um, he knows when I'm too dark in my middle voice and isn't afraid to tell me, because once you reach a certain level of stardom, if you will, it's amazing. You know, you spend all this time when you're a student being told you're wrong about this, this is flat, this is wrong, that's wrong. And then you get to a certain level, and people won't tell you when you need it most. They won't tell you. Mr. Adler was super influential in my career in that he singled me out to do a big concert as part of the Merrill Opera Program in Stern Grove of Balowin Mascara, where we did the big duet, and I did um, the act to Ecolorido Campo. Of course, it was all mic'd, so we were safe. And hence, he really remembered me well. Um, I went back to finish my degree, uh, my master's, after this big concert and the end of the Marilla, which I won the big prize at the end, which I think, I don't know, it was $800, a lot of money in those days. When I got back, I entered the Met Auditions, and I won in Los Angeles. I was like, oh my gosh, I've won the Met Auditions. So they passed me on back to New York, where um, I spent two weeks. And during that time, 
the Houston Opera had offered me a position as a young artist, but they wanted me to cover Arabella, sing Tosca, and Aida. Oh, boy. And I'm, yes, good Lord is what I said, too. And in fact, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh, my gosh, should I keep, should I do it? Should I not? I was only 23. I thought, I don't know what to do. And a couple of nights later, I lost the Met auditions. Uh, a good friend of mine who's remained friends forever is Vincent Cole, and he won. I didn't even place. In those days, there was first, second, third, and then there was nobody, and I was a nobody. But interestingly enough, and as karmic as the world is, as so many close connections, um, I was taken out to dinner by the people from Los Angeles who were wonderful supporters, and sitting next to me was Giorgio Tozzi, whose studio I now teach in. Mm-hmm. which is to me unbelievable i feel like there's so much you know so much such a small world and he sat next to me and he is such a wonderful charming and beautiful speaking voice and a you know a great artist and someone i had always looked up to and a sweet man oh my god he's so sweet and he he just kept pouring me red wine and slapping me on the back and saying kid, don't worry about it. There are singers and there are contest winners, and you're a singer. Don't worry about it. And he poured me enough wine that when I got back to the hotel, I thought, I can't go to Houston. What am I going to do? And I thought, I'm going to call Mr. Adler, which I never would have done had I been a little more sober. And I called Mr. Adler, and I said, Mr. Adler, um, I'm in this position, and I think it might hurt my voice, and I know you always wanted me to be really careful, and I think this might hurt me, and what do you think? I know you're starting a young artist program. And he, in his typically Austrian way, said, Don't worry about it. I call you back. And I said, Okay. And he literally had picked up the phone, called Beverly Sills, and said, I know that Atlantic Richfield is paying all your TV from New York. I want that they give the money for this girl for two years. And she and she said, well, can she sing? Does she have a good voice? And, and Kurt said, I think she can be really good. And so Beverly, sight unheard, went to Atlantic Richfield that afternoon, called them up, and called Mr. Adler back and said, tell her we've got the money. She should go to San Francisco. Mr. Adler called me in the Empire Hotel that night and said, be here February 14th. And I went, oh, my God, I've got a job. And the entire time I was in San Francisco, he he not only took care of me, but put me in the same opera with Beverly Sills, Puritani, where I did the part of Enriqueta just because I was tall enough, I think. Mm-hmm. And because we had to be mistaken for each other. And from that moment on, we became not only close friends, but any time, she said, any time you need anything, you call me. You have a thought, you call me. You have a worry, you call me. You need a cup of coffee, you call me. And so over the years, I can say I was very blessed with a great mentor, both of them. Well, Mozart was very important early in your career. And I'd like to turn to some music now. And you have selected uh, something from Idomeneo, I think. The last aria from Idomeneo, yes. This is a scene where um, 
uh, Electra, um, a very, coming from a very challenged family, the daughter of Agamemnon, has just discovered that the the man, the prince that she is meant to marry, the son of Idomeneo, is actually um, been blessed in marriage to marry Elia, a Trojan princess. And uh, Neptune has basically said, good triumphs over all, and these two will be together, and Electra goes insane. Electra's aria from Mozart's Idomeneo. Now, you expanded for Mozart. You went on to Verdi, Puccini, Richard Strauss. Uh, how did this come about vocally? Well, interestingly enough, you see, um, I did sing a lot of Mozart, and I sang the unusual Mozart, Civitalian Clemenza di Tito, and this Idomeneo, which everyone has just heard. And of course, I sang more than 204 performances of Donna Anna, 170 performances of Donna Elvira, and so I had quite a few Don Giovanni's under my belt. And bit by bit, as you get to a certain point in your career, it feels like you're running the record in the same groove, if those of you out there who actually still know what records are, but you, you just don't, you want to move it to the next groove. And Bit by bit, I had always sung arias of Verdi and arias of Gluck, and I think it was really more my temperament that attracted um, opera houses and major conductors. Ricardo Muti chose me for um, his first and only recording of Tosca, and that was my first Tosca ever, was the recording with Muti. And... Um, there was just something about how he made me look at the score of Puccini. And I'd always thought of Puccini, eh, Puccini, it's like cotton candy, it's very delicious, but, you know, I mean, where's the substance? Well, having actually then studied not only the actual piano vocal score, but the orchestral score, because as I discovered with Maestro Muti, if you didn't know exactly what all of the measure markings were, he could really be difficult, <laughs> if not to give you a very hard time. So I learned that there's so much in Puccini that that is actually dictated exactly by the composer, that it's very similar to Mozart. I mean, if you just do what Mozart, what Verdi, what Puccini has put in the score with their markings, you have a perfect interpretation. So this was one of the 
guiding, I think, lights of my career was that, for me, was that I never tried to sing... Well, I did sing Gilda, and I did sing Lady Macbeth. I did sing all three ladies in Hoffman, including the doll. Mm. I did sing Charlotte in Werther. I did sing Vespri Siciliani. I canceled Fanchula <laughs> because I thought, wake up, girl, That ha- it's all low and only has four high Cs, and it's too low for you. But I was blessed to be able to look at the scores and just do what the composer put. I And then my own personality, of course, you know, funneled through the actual music and the markings in the music and and the different conductors and directors. Of course, they all had different ideas. But I never tried to do anything with my voice that it wouldn't do. And I believed that all of these composers, it wasn't so much a change in how I sang, but a change in the style of the music. So if I did the style, that didn't mean I had to scream. For example, in the Tosca recording, I don't scream, I don't scream that, I don't scream mori, anything that's written to be sung, I sing. And once I started to do exactly what my voice would do, I never had trouble with anything. Um, I actually found the doll. (laughs) I felt stupid because I was in this big white dress with these big red circles (laughs) on my face. And I thought, my God, I look like, because I'm 5'10", I was like this gigantic voodoo doll. But I didn't think it was that hard because I had coloratura. That was just what I was born with, and I wish I could claim it as, oh, I worked that really hard. Well, no, it was a gift from God, simple as that, as was my chess voice, um, which served me in the bigger parts. So basically just singing with my real voice and then acting the character is what I try to tell the the students now, that, you know, it's not that you can't sing it. Many opera houses and and conductors are not they don't necessarily see you with their ears they you almost have to prove it to them but once they hear you they go oh of course i mean i've been offered really ridiculous parts with like isolde and you know then frau onschatten kaiserin well the kaiserin i might have been able to do but like ridiculous things that i think you know, I just, it's just not me. But everything else, I think my luck was that I had a natural fear factor. When I opened a score, if something in the score scared me, then I looked at, is it scary just because it's really hard? Or is it scary because I really can't do it? And I would. I was super aware. I'd learn it, give it a try, and I'd say, okay, if I can get from here to here, even not perfectly, then I can do it. But if I can't get from here to here, then I know it's not for me. And you have. And I think one of the things, young singers, I try to teach every single person that walks out of my studio, because I think they need to be independent. You know that clutching onto your. You certainly want support, but you don't want clutching, and you want to be able to be able to think. So I try to pass on to them the strength of being able to look and measure a part as opposed to just sing at it and say, oh, I can do it. 
And I think I was blessed, maybe by my Lithuanian dad, with a certain color in my voice. And my teacher never tried to take it out. He said, I want you to sing with your color. And whether or not I was a little dark for some things or not, no one ever tried in my generation to change the color of the voice and strip out the um, what was really unique about me. So in that, I was very blessed. We talked about Tosker. We mentioned it along the way. Uh, and I'd like to play some music from Tosca, the, the VC Darte. Those of us on the outside really don't know how a singer gets into a role, develops it, prepares for it, musically, vocally, artistically. Something like Tosca, how did you get into that role? And well, in the beginning, of course, first you learn the notes. Um, I always read the words through. I would read the libretto through. Um, I tried very, very strongly to not listen to a recording of it because I believe all singers are natural imitators. And I know for sure I can imitate many, many different things. And I, I thought, well, if I imitate that, I'm going to sound like that. So, you know, I really wanted to be me. So bit by bit, I learned it. And the music itself, especially of Tosca, kind of tells you what to do. You can hear in the cellos when she's when they're torturing Cavaradosa, you can hear the pain that she feels. And I think I had, um, I entered the role by learning it, of course, first, and then by working with the coach and by always asking the question, why? Why does she stop and sing Visidarte then? Why? And when I finally went back through the score, after having sung, I don't know, more than a hundred and something of them, I went back and she just keeps saying, non posso più, non posso più, non posso più, non posso più, until finally he gives her the ultimatum. She falls to the floor and she can't stand it one more minute. And then she just, in this, I believe, Visidarte does not stop the action, you see. I have never played her as everybody stops, I lie down on the floor, get in the position, and then sing the aria. I sing the aria as if it's absolutely still connected rhythm-wise and emotionally. I don't just kind of, you know, half sing it or make it. I actually keep her connected to the drums that have been drumming to announce the death of her lover. I keep it going that she's terribly afraid of Scarpia. And this woman is so religious that she can't believe that God would have betrayed her at this moment. And she can't stop but saying, why, why, why? How could you do this to me? And that is such an action. It has so much action in it that I I could never not keep it part of the action. So Anyone who, any girl who wants to get into Tosca just starts learning the notes, and the minute you get into the music, it's almost like you can't help yourself. Well, let's get into the action and hear you sing the Visidarte from Puccini's Tosca.
We have just heard Carol Vaness, our guest on Profiles today, sing Visidarte from Puccini's Tosca. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Uh, I understand that, uh, well, you mentioned earlier that you sang with Pavarotti in yes. his final performances. In his uh, final performances and and up to 11 years before them when he was really quite well and um, it was always an unbelievable honor. I felt like I almost learned more about singing just by the perfection of his singing and where how he used his voice. And he would always say, breathe, breathe, darling, breathe, breathe. And then when I would come back from Europe, I would come in rolling, rolling all my R's, and he would say, I can tell you have been working with Muti. And I would say, how can you tell? You are rolling all your R's. And, and he said, Muti is always into making you roll the R's. And I would just laugh and I'd say, okay, is that too much? And he would say, well, no, you want to do, you do, but I don't think you have to. But, you know, I I certainly respected him and adored him and couldn't believe, honestly, that I had the best seat in the house singing with him. It was unbelievable. But one of the things that I wouldn't portray to him was that I was afraid or you know, that I was afraid of him or that I didn't belong there. But I did believe that when we worked together, I think he felt that I was his colleague. And if I needed him, he was there for me. Because you always sometimes get to to parts of the opera where you feel a little tired or you need a little help getting up off the floor. He helped me off the floor. I've certainly... You know, he leaned on me for many Toscas, too. So um, I think we were great colleagues, and the loss of Luciano was one of the most devastating in my life. Um, the last performance was especially sad because he so much wanted to give the public his best. And he was human. It was flu season, he was terribly, terribly sick that night. And just the fact that he knew, he he was going to do it anyway, but that he knew that he couldn't give them his best, he gave every ounce of love to them that he could that night. Maestro Levine was 100% there for Luciano when he needed it. And, of course, I was there for him to lean on when we came to the final curtain call and... um. Oh, we were all crying and crying. I mean, it was, um, he was a great man, um, certainly temperamental enough, but I could understand if I tried to walk into a restaurant and was mobbed by 50 people, I might be temperamental too. So um, it was a great experience. And Mr. Domingo? Well, Placido is Placido is really active. I mean, being and working with Placido is 
is amazing in that it seems he's like the Energizer Bunny. It's almost like I thought, how many battery packs does this man have? He runs to Los Angeles. He runs to Washington. He hops on the podium at La Scala. He jumps up on the stage singing the main roles. And um, But I love have loved singing with him, doing the Otello at the Met with him was a wonderful experience. And uh, I wasn't quite as afraid of him as I was of John Vickers. I thought John Vickers really was going to kill me. But I wasn't worried about Placido. I know that Placido was was acting because he 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 was a great great joy and still is a good friend. John Vickers was intense, wasn't he? John Vickers. John, I am five foot tall and I am not skinny. And that man in his 60s picked me up and threw me 15 feet across the Palais Garnier Theater. While he was singing No Pagliaccio Non Sono, my only net I ever sang in my career, God bless, I was like, I was singing with Juan Pons and Mr. Vickers. And, and all I can say is our introduction as I came into the first rehearsal, and I, I had seen him in Peter Grimes. I had seen him. And to me, I thought, my God, this is another legend. Then I walked up to him and I put my hand out and said, oh, Mr. Vickers, I can't even believe I'm in the same room with you. It's such an honor. And he looked up at me and he said, you're very tall. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, yes, I am. He said, you'll be fine. Ever done the role before? And I said, no, sir, no, I haven't. He said, good, it's better that way. He said, that way we can really work together. That's how he worked. He worked with everyone together. Although you did really get the feeling he was going to kill you, I have to tell you. We want to do one more piece of music, and it's a killer piece, you say, and it's from Verdi's Aroldo. Talk about that. Tell us what's happening. Well, Aroldo is Stefelio. It's a very, it's a kind of a typical tale in terms of, um, except for that it's set in the time of the Protestant uh, uprising, and Aroldo himself, or Stefelio, is a minister. Who has been away at the royal at the at the religious wars, and has returned to his wife? They're almost identical operas. There are some things that are taken out and some things that are left in, but the the part of Mina actually has bits from Rigoletto. There's a quartet that's right out of Rigoletto, and it's this compilation of of Nabucco and Rigoletto and a little bit of Otello. Um, the part of Stefelio is a betrayed man, and you are an adulterous woman uh, who begs for forgiveness. Um, why you would want to go off with a secondary tenor, I don't know, but Mina does. Um, but her music is death-defying, I have to say. It was in a beautiful theater. Uh, we recorded it in Florence uh, with Fabio Luisi and with Neil Shikoff as um, as the Aroldo. And uh, I have to say it was amazing to be in the theater that Verdi actually first saw it performed in to actually be able to record it. It was mind-blowing. Rendetemi 
just heard Carol Vaness once again in a killer sort of an aria, cabaletta from an early Verdi opera, Oroldo. It would be interesting to go back to your teaching uh, and somewhat instructive, I think, for our listeners to become mice in your studio. And we can't actually do that, but... Sure, you could. Come on in. Uh, I love visitors. Well, could you, would you invite us in by telling us what goes on during these sessions? I know that one, one lesson is different from another and yes. one student's lesson is different from yes. another. But uh, tell us about the process. Okay. One of the things I do for absolute sure is I make sure when the student comes in that they're not gasping for breath from running from a class. You know, I make sure they hold, they, I either take their coats from them, I hang them up, I invite them in, I say, do you have water? I often have water in my studio for them in case they're running around and haven't had time. And I say, how are you? which is the very first thing that Beverly Sills used to always ask me. She would just say, how are you, before a performance at the New York City Opera or before anything that we ever did together. And I find out, first of all, how the singer is, because you can always tell by their eyes how their faces, if they're worried, if they're... And, you know, and if they look worried, you say, what's going on? Because you have to be a little bit of a psychologist. I mean, I don't... I don't pretend to be anything like that, but I do try to find out, are they happy, sad, mad, glad? And and then I start off with vocalese. Um, I ask them, once we start a little bit and get the voice slightly warm, I start with lip trills, which sound like... And it's just, it's almost something that is a little bit meditative for the singer that concentrates their minds on just making pitches, and it's very low stress. And then I say, okay, what are you singing today? In your lesson, what would you like to sing? They tell me the piece, and I warm them up differently for every single piece. So if a girl brings to me uh, Dove Sono, I will make sure that I warm up the voice until it comes to be flat or be natural or C so that she can feel the height of her voice without going to the extremes of D um, so that the middle of the voice stays nice and warm, but it's still buoyant so that they're not just locked in what I would call locked in your low voice, but I make sure they have the low extension. What I try to do is really tailor the the teaching session for what they need vocally and then dramatically because sometimes singing is is about 25 to 30% psychological and if you think you can't sing something there are many young singers that can be not talked into it but that can can be encouraged by knowing that I will do a vocalese without letting them know what pitch they're on 
and then say, they'll say, oh, I'm so worried about this note. And I say, and I say, well, you just vocalized up to this note with a lot of beauty and they're surprised or shocked. And I say, just think now you've sung four notes above what you even need. So you have all this leeway and let's together find out what will fit you. And I absolutely must say, I have never done the same lesson twice with any singer. Um, neither do I coach them alike. I don't want them once they're warmed up we if they know the aria i encourage them to not use a stand but if they use a stand and they need it i make sure that they're not staring down because i don't want them who stares down at the floor when you're singing to an audience i mean i always try to say you know there's nothing on the floor but dirt so you need to be looking up i said pretend there's an audience right in front of you and you're your gaze goes out. I said, you know, you're definitely going to want to give to them. I said, you're not giving to the floor. The floor is not going to have a great, cathartic, wonderful feeling for you singing to it. So anyway, I try to encourage them to move, to use their entire body to sing, rather than just placing one or two pretty tones and I tried. I said, this will serve you in the long run. I try to teach singers a technique that, for each of them different, that will carry them for their whole life and help them teach themselves when they're alone. Well, you've carried us uh, during this mm -hmm. hour, and we've run out of time, Carol Vaness. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. For Profiles, this is Peter Jacoby. The program you have just heard was recorded in December of 2009. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And... The Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, WFIU.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.